You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 79. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, as promised, I play interviews that I recorded at the 2018 Society for American Archaeology Conference in Washington, D.C. Let's get to it. All right, this is Chris Webster at the Society for American Archaeology meetings in Washington, D.C., 2018, and I'm with David Norline of FDI Precision Photography, and you can find them at www.fdi.photos. So, David, what are you guys doing here at the SAS? Uh, we're, we're actually um, uh, doing quite a few things. Everything photography, we provide um, uh, a service, a photographic service, um, to CRM firms, to museums, to, to um, universities. Um, we specialize in um, precision, high-tech, detailed photographs. So we, we uh, train people, individuals, uh, at these different universities and firms how to take the photographs we provide the equipment if they need the equipment we provide the training if they need the training or we actually do the photography ourselves Uh, so um, some projects require us to be there from the beginning when they're doing the surveys all the way through the curation process the kind of the the site excavations curation so we we can put together a a precision photography package um, that it starts from the very beginning to the very end of a project. And uh, we currently have quite a few, well, we have a con- contract with the uh, Army Corps of Engineers um, through, a, through a firm called uh, New South, a CRM firm called New South, that uh, we provided all the camera equipment and all the training for the veterans for a program called the Veterans Curation Program, mm-hmm. right, um, where we train the veterans how to take extremely high detailed diagnostic photographs of artifacts that are owned by the Corps. Mm-hmm. These guys have absolutely no photography background um, other than a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they end up within like two or three hours of training, they end up taking uh, museum quality photos and they do it consistently. So, And then we monitor it. We do all the quality control. Uh, so, so our goal is to, I don't know, step it up a notch, get the photography where in artifacts. My background is forensics and law enforcement. I'm, I'm a certified evidence photographer, so I bring with me, I guess, uh, an eye for detail and for making sure that we capture good quality, high definition photographs of artifacts and objects and, you know, or if we're taking photographs of, uh, you know, a process, like the curation process, and we could document it that way. That's a long answer to whatever you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. And just looking at your, your really detailed uh, setup here, I mean, it's clearly all about lighting. Oh, but is. also, something I noticed just on, you've got a, a little ceramic shirt here sitting up. Um, it's raised up. It's not sitting right on the glass. Absolutely. But but one thing you notice that, uh, I, one thing I notice right away that every time I see photography where somebody tries to do like lab, laboratory photography for a report is there's always a scale. And the scale is often sitting right on the uh, surface, and it's not at the same level as the uh, shirt, which changes your focus. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons that uh, we make sure we do this uh, one-on-one training with each individual, and and show them the importance of that scale position. The height it has to be on the same focal plane as the surface of the artifact, or the the scale is actually useless. Yeah. um, And that's where my forensic background comes in, because if we were photographing a piece of evidence, we and we had to present that photograph in court, it had to have a scale in it, and the scale had to be properly placed in order to say that this is an accurate representation of that 
that object, right? right. And so, with the, you were absolutely right when you saw that the scale is at the exact same height as the should be at the exact same height as the artifact, um, so that you could put that into any kind of measuring software. Uh, we demonstrate software when we're doing training that allows you to identify two points on that scale, if it's in that picture um, correctly. And then you could transfer that measurement to anywhere on that artifact to get really accurate measurements of small details on the artifact, you know. So that... Yeah, it's like uh, like detecting markers in like Agisoft Photoscan when you're doing photogrammetry, things yeah, like that. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The other thing you see, I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain over the microphone, <laughs> but the other thing you see is that the photographs that, uh, that are captured are, have a pure white background. Um, some objects we photograph on a pure black background, but 90% of them are shooting on a white background. They're right out of the camera. They're, um, there's no need to do post-processing. It's called dropout lighting, so there's, there's no shadows. Um, pure white backgrounds, if, uh, which is, eliminates the need to do Photoshop or any other post-processing software, uh, which is what a lot of cultural resource firms tell me they're, they're spending a lot of time touching up photos before they put them into a report. Right. So these pictures um, come right out of the camera, uh, pure white background. If you put them into a report, they just pop right off the, a white page. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to waste time Photoshop uh, or any other post-processing. So, yeah. And it's done, it, it all has to do with LED light technology. This is an LED light panel that you're looking at. And the side lights are LED lights. We have this one that's on a mobile cart, so the cart can actually, I have a battery that's underneath. This whole thing can just, I could roll down the aisle here at the conference nice. and photograph anything that someone hands me. Uh, our idea is to take these into museums and offer um, the, the, uh, you know, the service of photographing artifacts right off the shelf. So yeah. Pull it off the shelf, take a picture, take several pictures, put it back on the shelf, and maybe never see that artifact again. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. And other, you know, even private collections. Um, so that's kind of where where we are. With this. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I like that you mentioned, uh, you know, CRM firms talking about touching up photographs. It seems a lot, I mean, I run a CRM firm too, so I'm probably part of the problem. But it seems like uh, people don't focus enough on training to do the right thing the first time. They just muddle through and spend a lot of time doing things they probably shouldn't be doing, like touching up photos. It's the same thing with recording audio. I tell people when I train people on podcasting, listen, if you start with a good audio environment, you got less editing on the back end. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's amazing because uh, I mentioned um, uh, the Veterans Curation Program where I train yeah. veterans how to photograph the artifacts, and these guys have absolutely no photography background. Yeah. And without of a, after getting the proper training, uh, which is one-on-one -on -one training, usually like two and a half, three hours per person to show them the software, to show them the lighting techniques, to show them all that. Um, right after that, they're shooting museum quality photos that need absolutely no post-processing. And they do it for five months. And, and if you went back and looked at the pictures they, they took on day one and you look at the pictures they took five months later, they're identical. Yeah. So the nice thing is, and I say this a lot, you can give, um, you can have one object or one artifact, and you can get ten different people to photograph it, and you get ten different versions of that, uh, with the training and the systems that we put together. And we also provide um, a manual, so really simple user guides, so they know what buttons to push. Mm -hmm. You get ten different people taking a picture of the same artifact, and they're identical, yeah. because they're following these, these guidelines that we set up. The scale has to be, be positioned properly. It, we line up always with the left edge of the artifact, and mm -hmm. we only show a certain portion of the scale. The background's got to be pure white. So there's quality control is also very important. Mm -hmm. You know, we train the managers 
uh, of the veterans to, and, and you know the other CRM firms that we uh, that we put these systems in. We train the managers there on how to do the quality control and the photographs, what to look for, what you know, and then we also provide a uh, like a monthly or weekly quality control remote sessions, so we can remote in. And we could go. I could look at a week's worth of work, and I could say, I start. I'm starting to see a trend here. You got like people that are, you know, um, people they're not using the lighting correctly, or the scales off, or the, you know, or, or, or something like that. And if we if we correct it then, then you don't go months down the road doing mistakes, you know. Right. So. Okay. Um, no, this is really cool. And so a lot of, uh, and you may or may not be aware of this, but uh, you know, archaeology often on the West Coast. Uh, we don't often collect artifacts. I know out here on the East Coast, we often collect artifacts because it's all excavation, even shovel testing, things like that. So you have a really nice opportunity to clean up the artifact and take a picture of it in a laboratory type of setting. Do you guys, have you gotten into training people to do uh, field photography as yes, well? Absolutely, we yeah. have. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, out on the West Coast, I've been there like twice, two, two or three times to the same CRM firm to train new people, new employees that they've hired. And we've set up, I've actually, first off, do a consultation with uh, the owner or the manager and find out what their needs are. And they're, they're usually, in most cases, is that, you know, um, we just want constant, good quality photographs. And we're getting some people shooting with cell phones, some people shooting with iPads, some people shooting with the, whatever digital camera they have. Yeah. So I said, well, first off, we have to get everybody using the same equipment. And that's what a, one of, part of the consulting is finding out what, you know. What is it you're doing now that you want to change, you right, know? Right. And so we did. I recommended a certain field camera, um, and I made. I said either each person gets a camera, or, or if you have 12 people, you get six cameras, and you figure out the logistics of it, but everybody uses the same camera. Once everybody has the same camera, I can come out and do the training, because then I come out and I'll do, all right, everybody together, let's... Let's set the camera at this setting now, yeah. and then we develop a guide for them. You know, so it's, so my part isn't really teaching them the archaeology because I am not an archaeologist. It's teaching them how to use the camera properly, and then and then establishing procedures to get good quality photos in the field. So the camera had to have macro capability to shoot close-ups. The camera had to be dustproof, waterproof, um, have GPS built into it, have um, be able to fire it from your cell phone. And there, and I found a camera that does that there's multiple cameras out there in the $300 range and this particular CRM firm said I want six of them and I want you to come out and teach my people how to use them and come and then they went then they got new employees the following year and they wanted me to come back and train them you know so so yeah we've done field photography and my and I've also I, I spent three years in Iraq in, uh, 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 me, uh, excuse me investigating mass graves documenting photographing mass graves um, and then the photographs that were collected and uh, were used to prosecute Saddam Hussein for uh, genocide so I've, I've got a lot of field photography background uh, and that's kind of when I was introduced to archaeologists archaeology I was uh, I never did any archaeology I did crime scenes and evidence but and then I go to the biggest crime scene I've ever been to in, in Iraq and I meet archaeologists because the team was made up of archaeologists mostly yeah you know and uh, so we started actually out there developing what we call, um, you know, SOP, standard operational procedures um, for field photography. And and one of it, one of the requirements out there was that all right, nobody uses a personal camera, nobody uses a cell phone. You use the you use the camera we assign you, and you follow these directions. Yeah. And that way we got consistent, good quality photos, no matter who shot the pictures. Yeah. So. 
another long answer to your question. <laughs> you saw you stuck that microphone in my mouth, that's right, <laughs> in my that's face. Right. So no, that's great. Um, so if people want more information about what you guys do, it is www.fdi.photo. Correct. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, David. All right, buddy. Thank you. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network and the Society for American Archaeology Meeting 2018 poster session, and I'm here with Sarah Stryker with her poster, Applications of Microscopy Paired with Thin Section Petrography in Iroquoian Ceramic Analysis. Sarah, tell us all about this. So there's a few of us um, students and new graduates who work on um, Iroquoian archaeology who have been working the past few years to try to get people to pay more attention to the ceramic fabrics of, of this pottery. Um, for Iroquois ceramic analysis, the big thing people focus on has always been decorative style, and that's because it's really well studied. You can learn a lot from it in a short amount of time with a short amount of money. So um, building on some work that's been done in the region, I really wanted to come up with a method that's uh, very similar to what people do in the Phoenix Valley, uh, identifying Hohokam pottery, where you can look at certain characteristics of the temper and learn something about where the pottery was made um, just with a standard microscope and so I was working with um, the mantle site which is one of my dissertation sites um, it's, it's near what is now Toronto Ontario and um, there was a, a really extensive petrographic study done by Linda Howie a few years ago looking at 60 shirts and several pipes um, she took thin sections and did a qualitative analysis, doing a really detailed um, description of the different ceramic fabrics, including the clays and tempers. And so I looked at the same shirts she looked at, but I didn't look at her analysis when I was examining them with just a USB, like a Dynalite microscope. And by doing that, I was able to make characterizations, go back and look at what she found, and kind of check my results. Mm -hmm. And going back and forth, I identified certain characteristics of the size, sorting, um, angularity, some IDs for the temper, and a bunch of characteristics of the natural clays, including um, features from the depositional environment and natural inclusions in the clay that you can see with a dynolite microscope, just on a broken piece of the shirt. And um, my poster is just about how I did that and my methodology and then some suggestions for people who might want to do that in another region. Uh, and that would be, you need to know the geology, you need to work back and forth with somebody who's doing um, a, a quantitative method or a qualitative description. I highly recommend working with someone like Linda Howey who does very qualitative, detailed descriptions using a ceramic thin section photography because there's many things that you can see with the Dynalite microscope, but you can't consistently identify, such as minerals um, and rocks. It's very hard to do that consistently. Um, just go back and forth, working with the thin sections like that. You can come up with some pretty consistent, uh, you can come up with variables you can record quite consistently for a very small budget. So a Dynalite microscope is a couple hundred dollars, and you can integrate this into your standard analysis. Um, I'm able to make simple paste and clay groups just using these data. Okay, and you're with Arizona State University, and this collection you were working with was from where again? So this is from the Mantle site. This is an Iroquoian village um, near what is, it's an ancestral Wendat village near Toronto, Ontario. Okay. These collections came from 
um, the Canadian Museum of History. They generously allowed me to study them, ship them to me for a loan, um, and the research was funded by the National Science Foundation. Okay, great. And it sounds like this is a, some, a method that could be used in other places with other collections. I would highly encourage people to try this with their collections. If you work somewhere where people describe their pottery as grit-tempered, but you know by looking at it when you do other kinds of analysis that there's some variability there, get out a microscope, look at it, see what you, what you can record. If you can get some funding, have a few thin sections made, see what a professional photographer can identify in those thin sections, go back and look how you characterized it, <clears throat> and see if you can find anything that you can identify consistently because there's big questions you can answer. One of the biggest questions I'm trying to answer right now is, is there a correlation between um, clay choice, temper choice, and the decorative style of the pot. So do different decorative types come with different um, kinds of temper or different clay choice, that sort of thing. Okay, well, thanks a lot for that. Thank you very much. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Society for American Archaeology annual meeting in the poster session, and I'm with Catherine Sinkar. And she's got a poster called What's in a Seed? Analysis of the Cultural Processing and Fracturing Nature of Uncharged Sambucus on a, and I'll have you pronounce the rest of it. On a Stolo Sa uh, Coast Salish settlement. Okay, sounds good. So what's all about these seeds? What, what can you tell me about your poster? Well, this poster is kind of like the second poster in, like a, I guess, a series in this, uh, where the original poster looked at Sambucus seeds found at this settlement in British Columbia. And normally, if they were uncharred Sambuca seeds, and normally with an uncharred seeds, of course, you just kind of set them aside. You don't really think about them because they normally don't have cultural significance. However, in this case, uh, they had they were fragmented, and in that case, it might indicate that there was some human processing involved. So this experiment was on, uh, or this uh, this poster is on uh, different tests that we did that would, might indicate how these were processed. And different ways we did them was uh, boiling at different uh, for different times and then mashing them. And then I think for one we did a roasting for a little bit and then mash. And our results ended up being less than the cultural site. And what we find that this might be is because uh, the seeds that we used for the experiment were different than uh, the seeds that came from British Columbia, mainly because we couldn't get the uh, British Columbia red elderberry seeds like we, we wanted to. Or it could be that it's just different processing that we haven't explored yet, like uh, drying the seeds or possibly boiling them for longer like if you were doing in a stew. So as we go forward with that, it's just thinking about different processes that we could uh, go through uh, to see if we can find why these elderberry seeds are fragmented. How were these consumed prehistorically? Do we know that? Or were they just charred, uh, cooked and eaten, or, or what did they do to them? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I didn't work on the archaeological site itself, okay. but um, I'm not exactly sure. All right, and has this opened up areas for like maybe further research on other seeds and types of things uh, that you're aware of? Um, it possibly can. I mean, if it if it works with the Sambucus uncharred seeds, we could possibly look into other seeds where uh, uncharred, or other uncharred seeds that could also have this uh, fragmentation that's occurred. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. This network is listener-supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. 
the APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia has launched a professional online master's program built by and for cultural heritage management practitioners. The thesis-based MA or coursework-only graduate certificate both offer integrated study of HRM's ethical, legal, business, and research priorities. The MA thesis requirements comply with Register of Professional Archaeologists and other jurisdictional standards. This is the perfect graduate program for bachelor-level CRM practitioners ready to make a career commitment, but not ready to relocate or quit their job. We have advertised for SFU in the past, and we had a long podcast about SFU's program, and I highly recommend it. If you're looking to get a graduate degree in cultural resource management, this is the way to go. Apply today at www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology. That's www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology to take your career to new levels today. This is Chris Webster at the Exhibit Hall on Friday, the Society for American Archaeology Conference 2018 in Washington, D.C., and I'm standing here at the In Terrace Registries booth with Michael Cappers. Michael, how's it going? Going very well. Thank you very much. And tell me, what is Interis Registries? Look like you've got a bunch of digital archaeology stuff going on here. Interis Registries, uh, formerly known as Archaeolink Americas, is an archaeological information system. And we try to uh, fit everything in one system, uh, ranging from uh, project data all the way down to your finest detailed data for one or more archaeological projects. So you don't have to switch between different uh, software, uh, everything is within one database and approachable. Uh, the system has functionalities, uh, project management, um, field data recording, field uh, data registry, registration, uh, artifact registrations. Um, it has a separate module to integrate uh, specialist information and lab data information with which we can integrate already existing specialist tables because that needs to be very flexible because old specialists always want something else. You cannot create, we cannot create, for instance, a ceramic module because that's only for the people that we designed it for because another ceramic specialist wants something else might even be because they work in a different area and a different analysis methodology is necessary um, what else um, uh, curation functionalities um, if you work with the storage of material in boxes and shelving, that can all be done as well. Uh, imagery, images, photographs can be integrated and connected to all the data in the database. It has its own integrated GIS and um, it can also work with peripheral hardware such as uh, barcodes with a barcode printer, barcode scanners and uh, digital skills, digital calipers that will send their data to the appropriate fields. So I do notice you have some some barcodes here. I'm interested in that because everybody's everybody's always talking about barcodes and using them and trying to figure it out. So this will generate barcodes for different 
things and then you can print those barcodes out and I would assume you could probably also because you can buy barcodes um, that are like series of barcodes okay. you know if you could integrate something like that well this uh, system allows you to create your own barcode tags uh, with yeah. a sequence like for within uh, within one project you can have a unique uh, set of barcode numbers and throughout the database they can be a unique it's unique handle um, that connects the material to the data in the database and where it's from, the provenience information, but also storage and curation information. Now, these barcode tags can be um, used on different levels. You can use them in the field, assign them to uh, a piece that you find, an artifact that you find, or a bulk of artifacts that was uh, retrieved by excavating a certain provenience. Then next, when you start uh, processing the material, on that level you can print a new barcode that specifically goes with the material that you are looking at. So split up in different categories or a special find that you want to keep separate. Then the next levels you can use the barcodes on are the boxes, the movable uh, storage containers and also the fixed storage locations for in your repository such as the shelving positions these are all different locations where you can add the barcodes and that will speed up the work because you just scan and it will give you information uh, what is it where is it from where is it stored uh, or where can I find it or where does it need to be put back okay uh, and then I think the final thing that I'm interested in uh, because this does a lot of things and it's an organized database of information, right? And and a lot of companies, they, they've built up over the years their own access database or FileMaker database or something that may or may not be organized <laughs> in certain ways. So I'm interested in the things that kind of bring it all together. So project management, um, if I'm going to start a new project, how does uh, Interis registries help me with project management? Like what kind of stuff, aside from just like collecting field data and, and lab data and then storing these things and then, you know, processing them, what kind of other project management things do you have? I noticed user management and stuff like that as well. Yes, there's a few aspects about the system that I haven't mentioned yet. Um, for instance, the user management that you just mentioned is um, everybody who works with the system needs to log on with a password. So every record that is being created or updated gets a timestamp and the username attached to it. So you can always retrace it. And through querying, you can uh, get all that information as well. Now, this, uh, you can also create a user profiles that allow certain levels of access to a certain user group so a user is connected to one or more user profiles now on the other end the project management um, per project you can create all kinds of detailed information and add that in a project table specifically for one project but on the level above that which is more the overall project management uh, you can um, um, how, you, how do I explain this um, the overall uh, procedures and steps within the investigation of a certain area. So, for instance, in the East, when we talk about phase one, two, three, uh, that can all be managed on that top level, and uh, it allows you to uh, create a, um, uh, a flow of all the steps that are involved uh, in the investigation of the area, such as um, um, preliminary desk research or a coring uh, expedition or um, um, the survey, the phase one, and then later you get phase two and phase three, the excavations, that can all be managed in those things, while those uh, specific excavations are a separate 
archaeological project on one level deeper, where you will store all the detailed information for that particular project. Now, on that top level, you can connect external documents, uh, all kinds of just, uh, photographs, PDF files, uh, Excel sheets, uh, like reports or emails, correspondence, all that. Uh, information can be connected and aligned um, on that top level and this whole thing from the top to the bottom this can work in different um, database setups so if you are a small organization and you work with very small projects or separate projects you can work with its own uh, database file but if you have a lot of data and you want to work with a large database with enormous amounts of projects and data all together, then you can also opt for um, a client-server uh, database setup, which can be proprietary or online hosted. And of course, even if you work with a client-server database setup, which we uh, use SQL Server for, SQL Server, um, then still, if you go into the field, you can work with the, um, the small-scale setup if you have no connection with your network while in the field. And then with a merge and synchronization tool, we can put everything back together again. Okay, sounds good. So that's a lot of information. Um, there's a lot more to check out. So where can people find out uh, pricing and other information on the web? Um, the pricing, we usually, <laughs> <laughs> we usually break it up in three parts. It's the, the, the yearly fee, the yearly recurring fee for the licenses we have, uh, which is uh, 450 US dollars per year per workspot. There are student licensing, which are lower for just uh, students for their own projects and or for training purposes. And then we have um, a block that involves the setup and the training because this is such a vast system that encompasses everything. Some training is necessary to get things started. And the third section would be all the hardware which we usually only advise about, like if you buy this, it will work, because we can do it, but if we do it, it becomes more expensive. So those are the three sections of, uh, to consider about costs. Um, we have a pricing document, people can email and get that. And our website is interisreg.org. Interis with double R and an R-E-G, short for registries.org. Okay, thanks a lot, Michael. You're welcome. Uh, this is Chris Webster at the Society for American Archaeology meeting in Washington, D.C. And I'm not in the poster room because I missed it yesterday, but I'm with P.T. Ashlock, who had a, uh, a poster. And since I don't have it, um, just tell us roughly what the title was, unless you can read it off your uh, phone there. <laughs> I'll give you the title. Essentially, the poster was a focus on 3D technologies, virtual reality, augmented reality, immersive media, um, uh, 3D scanning, and how we integrate that into public archaeology. So. All on a two-dimensional poster. All on a two-dimensional poster. We did, a, we did have a picture of some of our 3D work there, along with some VR headsets, for just, just for the fun of it. But uh, When do you think we're going to have a VR poster room? That's my question. Where you just you know, walk would, through and you put on the... I would love to see immersive technologies in posters. I would love to see digital posters where people are able to come and interact, just like you can at some of the museums with touch screens and those types of things. Because then it allows the user to intake this data and delve as deeply as they want to into it. I mean, uh, we're kind of going off topic here, but a lot of high-end like Android devices and then from the iPhone 8 up um, to the 10, 
they have augmented reality capabilities. So building an application in through the SAA that people can put stuff on their posters and then it interacts and comes out, that would be amazing. QR codes, being able to, to, to link to that immersive media, it's going to bring the next generation to a connection with archaeology. Uh, everybody's so tactile. Everybody is so right. involved in their devices. And these platforms, both Android and Apple, have the ability to do so. And the weakness that we see in this, which is something that we brought up, was that there are not a, a lot of archaeologically based apps that capture VR and AR. Uh, we're getting there, but we need to see that uh, that grow. So that's that's something that could be improved upon. Okay, that digital poster symposium. <laughs> so, getting back to your poster, what was the what was the um, the basic thesis? What are you trying to convey with well, that poster? The premise was that we can. This type of technology is becoming more readily available, and it can be introduced. Not everybody needs to spend fifteen hundred dollars on an Oculus to be able to introduce this to the local museum or to local kids in outreach that you're trying to reach when you're when you're doing a public event. So you can go and, and the devices we had were one was AR VR connected, and I'm not going to mention any specific brands because we're not here to support that. But just the fact that you could buy things. For under $100, produce this information, use Sketchfab and photogrammetry to produce 3D models, which people could then see in these VR and augmented reality scenarios. And to get that information of you know your local artifacts, your local sites, into an immersive state where people could interact with it and take the site back to the people, mm-hmm. if you will, without them having to visit. Okay, and, uh, and you don't need a you don't need like you need some technical knowledge, but you don't need a ton of technical knowledge really to do this. Absolutely. I, mean, I mean, if you've got a smartphone and you know with app development, like I said, we need to do we do need to see more of that. But to just interact with it is long you know you put the device in the headset, turn it on, link it up, and, and you're pretty much good to go. All right, so hey, if people have more uh, questions for you, is there anywhere they can reach you online? Or? Um, the Lamar Institute, they can send questions there. Um, they can also reach me at ancientarchaeology at gmail.com 24-7. So feel free to send me an email, and I, I'll do my best to answer your questions. So. Man, how did you get ancientarchaeology at I've gmail.com? I've had that email since I was probably 14 years old, and it's a long one, and it's spelled in the British spelling, A-N-C-I-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thanks, PT. So, yeah, appreciate it, Chris. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network on a relatively quiet uh, Saturday morning, obviously, at the Society for American Archaeology Conference. Uh, Saturday is always quieter. Uh, not as quiet as Sunday is going to be. However, um, I'm in the poster room with Nicholas Case, and he's got a poster on digital archaeology in Mongolia, visualizing the data. So, morning, Nick, and uh, tell us what you got here. Hi, uh, yeah. Uh, all right. So, what we got here is uh, my digital archaeology project that I did in uh, Northern Mongolia, part of the uh, nomadic, uh, well, the, now it's the, the uh, Northern Mongolian Adventure and Discovery in Science project, uh, formerly known as the Northern Mongolia Archaeology Project. Uh, we go up there and we've got a field school of uh, about, there's about 40 people on camp and what I did was I digitized, I was part of the process of digitizing the data collection using tablets all on open source software. Uh, we were able to design the forms offline and manage the types of data we were collecting and, and basically putting it onto an Excel sheet or into a database immediately upon, um, upon return to camp once they connected to our Wi-Fi network and a server that was running out of my laptop. And we were able to generate um, artifact reports <clears throat> immediately on a nightly basis, and we visualized the data like on the type, like on the, from what the survey teams are collecting. I'm going to point, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I can't be. Um, yeah. So these these are maps here that that uh, we were able to see on a nightly basis as survey teams came back into the camp 
and uh, so that the rest of the people that were doing other things could really see what everybody else was doing. And I felt that that was uh, <clears throat> one of the major advantages of doing that is because when I, when I went there years before, I was on a team and everyone else was on a different team and we didn't really know the big picture. So I felt like the, the, that was really the focus of what my project was uh, part of, is kind of bringing the big picture down for everybody else instead of, you know, on the plane on, on to the archaeological conference. So, uh, yeah, we used uh, the Open Data Kit. It's, uh, like I said, the open source software. And uh, GeoODK was the applications we ran on our, our tablets. And we had all base maps that I made up, um, so that way we didn't need to have any kind of internet connection, and people were able to see where they were on the map. And, and we went like miles apart away from the camp, so that's important. See what type of the features looked like in the big picture. Don't really have Google Maps out there. There's like no internet. Um, yeah, we everything ran off solar, so I had uh, solar panels hooked up to my laptop and charging the tablets at the end of the night. And um, we also did photogrammetry with just cameras that, that archaeologists had on hand already. And they, they, we um, scanned different features and we were able to produce some of the models out in the field. That's one of the things I want to do next year is, or this year is bring a more powerful computer out there so we can process them right away. Um, my laptop was basically melting. <laughs> we're taking up almost all the battery stores we charged with the solar. And um, yeah, but then I, when I say here my conclusion, one of the one of the more difficult things or that we that I came across for, and it's always hard to plan for. I learned is uh, the human use of the tablets and all the the hurdles of that. But like that was one of our advantages that we were able to redesign the form. If we wanted to add letters where there was no only numbers, we did that. Uh, we needed we added more blanks. We got rid of ones we weren't using, and uh, we're basically through uh, through feedback and collaboration. And um, yeah, the way we had designed the system, we were able to just uh, keep updating it and reflecting it how archaeologists were using it out in the field. So that way, like, we have a lot of people out there that are more used to traditional notebook and note card and logging right. that way. So um, our goal was to accommodate that through tablets. Made the like that's why I said here, like, yes. make, concentrate on the data querying versus uh, the data entry. So let me get this right. You're in northern Mongolia, and you're using tablets, and you're charging those tablets via solar. Uh, batteries you had charged up via solar, presumably during the day while you guys are working, you charge up overnight. And you've got some great maps here, you're going all over the place. People say that you can't do digital archaeology in these circumstances. How do you do it? And Bernard Means, <laughs> uh, official <laughs> statement is that you can't do it. So, it's you know, possible. it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is all fake. fake. This whole it's thing is fake. fake. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. It was, that was. And that's oh, great. It, no, it's great. I'm just saying it's great. You guys were able to not only um, collect data, but modify your forms, do what you had to do, and be flexible and mobile as you did your project without the assistance of, you know, a, a basically base of operations that had all the power and internet connectivity. Yeah, that, that was really the big challenge is, I mean, it was trying to figure out how we were going to do all of this without any kind of infrastructure and yeah. largely the excuse as to why we haven't yet, you know, like, oh, we, you know, can't, can't do it out there, you know, we don't have power, we don't have internet, the, the generators can't run the whole time like that, so, yeah, uh, yeah so I, I had to clear many hurdles to get this uh, to work, you know, and then a lot of it was uh, convincing my colleagues that, that we could do it, so... Awesome. Well, this is, uh, it's amazing, and it just shows that when somebody is 
uh, open to the technology and open to the process that you'll find a way to make it work and you'll be flexible when you get out there and you learn stuff you'll probably do different things next time oh yeah a lot of lessons yeah, learned yeah a lot of lessons learned and uh, keep on keep on going thanks a lot Nick thank you the Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices Podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network, and I'm at the Society for American Archaeology Conference on Saturday morning in a poster session, and I'm with Andrea Cruz in her poster, Digital Archaeology through historic photography. So Andrea, tell me all about your poster. Uh, So my poster is on the Route National Forest in Northwest Colorado. Uh, We are one of the first national forests um, and we wanted, we had a huge amount of historic photographs that have never been public, um, scanned, archived, cataloged, anything. Um, And so I saw this need, uh, had a class in digital heritage, um, learned about Omeka. Um, and, and, and Omeka is a software. It's a web-based content management system. He says, tell me about that a little bit before you get too far. Yeah, uh, so Omeka is a free downloadable. It's it's based off of digital humanities. So a lot of English history um, love it um, because it makes you include uh, the lovely metadata. Um, and then it also has different plugins that you can add. So you can add collections, exhibits. You can add some GIS with Neatline. Um, and every... Every six months, every two months, basically, they're adding new and new plugins. So now they're actually added in crowdsourcing, which I'm going to add to the website. Um, And so it's a really nice, easy, streamlined process um, that once you get going, it's pretty easy. So, so yeah, I scanned the images, um, uploaded the data um, as... Uh, archaeology tech at the forest I kind of knew some of the basics and then on the backs of most of the photos they had descriptions Um, and so I put that all in with the metadata and then started putting into exhibits to kind of see some different patterns Um, I looked at the guard stations which most of them are still there Um, I did 360 um, Google Street views of them the ones that I could Um, so you can see the 1900s to the 2018s Um, and I'm trying to fill in the gaps in between um, and just kind of so people can kind of see there's only one that they can actually stay at but employees um, stay at most of them and then just driving around looking at the forest staying you can always see different things Um, some fun things that I noticed is um, bears Um, their guards loved bears they actually had pet bears for quite a while um, and then if anyone's ever heard of Steamboat Springs, this is where it is. Um, so skiing has been huge since the 1900s. Um, and so there is just a huge amount of photos of people skiing back in the wilderness. Um, it's, that, those are really cool because they're, you know, wooden skis, ladies in hoop skirts, um, killing it, beating us. Um, and then horses, of course, which they still use today. So it's kind of cool to see this 1900 photo and then go out there and they're still using the same technology because it still works. So, there you go. Um, 
So, a couple questions related to this. What, um, now that you've scanned everything in, what happens to the original collections? Like, where are those now? Do they just go back in storage? or? Yeah, they'll go yeah. back in storage. Um, and I've only done some of the photographs, um, just because not, I can't do all of them. Sure, volume. Um, but, yeah, they'll go back in storage, and then the site is going to be public, and then I'm hoping to crowdsource the locals and getting more photographs because there's kind of a gap between 1940 and 1980, basically. Okay. Um, and so kind of we can get that timeline. So. Okay, yeah, and that was the final question was where's where can people see this stuff? So it's going to be available to the public yeah. at some point? It is now, actually, okay. technically. Um, it's routenationalforest.createunl.com. There you go. All right. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. This is Chris Webster at the Society for American Archaeology Conference 2018 Washington, D.C. for the Archaeology Podcast Network. And I'm with Eric Kanza on our somewhat annual uh, interview about uh, in the exhibit hall about Open Context and DINA. So, Eric, welcome to the show. And tell me what Open Context and DINA are doing lately. Hi, Chris. Thank you. Um, Open Context is a data publishing service for archaeology, and um, we're a little bit different from a repository. We don't do the preservation ourselves, but we do um, the publishing side of it, which means that we do a lot of cleanup and editing and linking and standards annotation and all that sort of thing to make data more meaningful and accessible. And then we deposit data into institutional repositories like the California Digital Library in our case, which is the main repository for the University of California system, but we also work with other partners too. And um, one of the uh, big projects that is being hosted by Open Context is the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, DINA. And it's a big multi-institutional collaboration, um, involves uh, Indiana University in uh, South Bend and uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So uh, in South Bend, it's Josh Wells, and in Knoxville, it's David G. Anderson, who are the uh, PIs. And DINA is funded by the National Science Foundation and also the Institute for Museum and Library Services. And what we're trying to do is um, aggregate and publish state site file data. And we're redacting sensitive information, especially specific location information. So the data are published with a, a low degree of geographic precision, but nevertheless, they're really, really useful for a broad range of uh, research and public outreach kinds of applications and even heritage management applications. And how many states is Dina up to at this point? Uh, roughly 20. So um, that's, uh, and mostly it's the focus is uh, um, the best coverage, most comprehensive coverage is in the uh, southeast and the Midwest, and we're also moving into uh, the northeast now. So um, we'll be uh, shortly publishing a few states in the northeast, which just finished Pennsylvania recently, and, um, and we're hoping to move out west also. So... Obviously, to make this whole process easier would be for people to collect data in a way that was already beneficial for entering into these systems. Are you working with states to maybe work on those standards at all yet? Are you at that stage yet? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> we have a lot, there's a lot to chew on, and this is one of the really important things about digital archaeology issues is that there are so many needs. The needs are vast and complicated, and we really need a lot of people engaged in this issue. So we can't do it all by ourselves, obviously. So having partners who are engaged in field data collection is a, is a really important goal with us, even though we're not going to probably do it our, our ourselves, but that kind of collaboration is really important. Um, 
We have another project that we're running that's funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and what we're studying is um, uh, the uh, alignments between data creation and data reuse. So we're doing a lot of um, field observations and basically workplace ethnography about how people create data in the field, and we're also doing a lot of reuser interviews, trying to see what researchers need in order to reuse data that are being captured by other people working on their field projects. And the goal of that project is really to try to align those interests so that the people who are creating data are creating data that is easier to understand and reuse by a broader community. Okay. So how does somebody, uh, we'll start with Open Context, how does somebody find and engage with Open Context and then, you know, engage your services there? Right. Well, I mean, if you're a user of Open Context, it's a, we're an open access, completely login-free um, data publishing service. And uh, we are forego logins and all that sort of thing um, not just because it's uh, um, we're, we're, we're uh, trying to make the data really accessible but some of the material we're publishing is uh, coming um, from contested areas so uh, if you're I mean we can imagine if you're an archaeologist in Saudi Arabia or in Iran and you're interested in material in Israel that might be politically sensitive um, and so we try not to collect any data about users <laughs> and and so uh, we uh, wipe IP addresses we just wipe out server logs we try to make sure that we're um, doing really good practices in terms of privacy and what that means is that we don't collect um, uh, user login data and and um, we don't use things like Google Analytics also so that's a, that's an important kind of kind of an issue um, but basically, yeah, you just go to the website and you can uh, browse around, search, and download um, materials um, and uh, ideally cross-reference them with other things that you find on the web also. so we And we do a lot of that cross-referencing. So when we publish materials, we're not just uh, um, trying to um, uh, uh, clean them up and make them more co- um, uh, uh, improve the data quality just uh, because it makes it more useful within open context, but we also um, annotate and link the data that we publish with data that are coming um, online um, in other collections and other uh, uh, places across the whole web. So that, that, that the important aspect of this is that there are a lot of expertise out there. There are a lot of people doing really excellent work uh, sharing data. We want to make sure that the, what we publish is actually uh, contributing in a meaningful fashion to, that, to the rest of the contributions that are going online on, on, in other systems. Okay, and the website for Open Context was what again? Uh, opencontext.org. There you go, that's easy enough. And finally, how does somebody uh, get into DINA or, or get over to the DINA website and start checking things out? Yeah, so DINA is a, a project in Open Context, so um, it has a, a project identifier, but uh, one of the um, URLs for it that's easiest to remember is the project <laughs> URL, which gives you running updates. It's basically our blog. Uh, ux.opencontext.org slash archaeology dash site dash data There you go. Alright. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Chris. This is Chris Webster with the Archaeology Podcast Network at the Exhibit Hall, the Society for American Archaeology Conference in Washington, D.C., 2018. And I'm here with Naima Jackson of Geometrics. And I actually was pulled into the booth because I saw a UAV-enabled magnetometer. It's a crazy thing hanging off a drone, basically. So first, tell me what uh, Geometrics is and what you guys do. Yeah, so we are a geophysical instrument manufacturing company based out of San Jose, California. We've been around since 69. Uh, We manufacture magnetometers, seismographs, and geoelectrical instruments. And in, in July... 
August of this year, we're going to be releasing our UAV-enabled magnetometer, the Mag Aero. Uh, it's a one meter long, one kilogram, essentially a bird that you would suspend from a UAV. Um, it has SD card on board, batteries on board that'll run for two hours on a single charge. And the communication interface is via a web browser. So if you have a cell phone or a tablet in the field, you connect to the Mag Arrow via Wi-Fi and you tell it when to start and stop logging and you can download your data right there in the field. And um, we're hoping to have that all ready to go by July, the end of July of this year. So. Well, well there you go. Uh, quick question on that. How high above the ground does it need to be for the, uh, for the magnetometer to work? Well, so that would depend on the source. So for, for archaeology, you're dealing with relatively small, iron-rich sources, right? right. So you'd want to be as close to the ground as safely possible flying mm -hmm. the drone. Right. <laughs> so maybe about two to three meters off the ground, and then um, the mag arrow will be suspended two to three meters below the drone. So the drone will be maybe at six meters, the mag will be at three meters, and that'll probably be a good separation for archaeology. Okay, yeah, and in your photograph you have a, a hexacopter, um, so something yeah. something definitely with a, a heavier payload capacity would yeah. be good. Well, it only weighs a kilogram, so anything that can handle a kilogram... Still not bad. Yeah. 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 And, and I guess, uh, I think you said this, let me let me make sure I'm understanding, so the, the Mag Arrow works independently of the drone, so it doesn't need to like plug into it, so nope. basically if you can hang it off of something that can fly, it'll work. Basically. And you control it independently. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know, because people with existing drone platforms that they can suspend it from that can actually hold the weight, which sounds like they can, mm -hmm. um, then they can they can use it. They might need a separate operator for the uh, for, for the, the magnetometer. UAV. That's right. And oh, the UAV. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, okay, well, great. Um, where can people find out more about what you guys do? Uh, geometrics.com. Um, send us an email. Send us a fill out our um, web lead page, and it'll send us an email, and I can definitely send you some information and a quote. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.